This is the Urban Jellicle Podcast. Hello, this is Michael Kelly. Welcome to Urban Jellicle. I'm with a longtime friend and one of our church planters, Greg Joins, who is at Christ Central Church in Corvallis, Oregon. He's done a wonderful work there, he and his family's wife, uh, for like about eight years now. And we're going to talk to Greg about some of the things that he's learned on the field, but also through his Doctor of Ministry program at Fuller Seminary. And I'm hoping and confident that those who are now in the field working are going to find it fruitful. Some of the lessons that he's learned, he's going to share with us. So I want to welcome you, Greg. Thanks for giving us time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here and great to see you. So tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about your work down there and your journey into church planting so that we can understand the context that you're speaking to us from. Yeah, uh, I'll go back to kind of where I was late high school. Uh, That's really the time when my faith really became my own. Uh, And it's been interesting to see the journey that God has called me on. I I was very much in a very um, churched environment that felt devoid of the gospel. That was very much a cultural Christianity, just the very standard evangelical movement. And it was uh, something that I saw a huge sort of divorce from what I was seeing in the Bible itself. Um, And I really struggled in that context. Um, And it made me a little bit repulsed about what the church was that I was seeing, the trajectory that it was on, um, and ended up uh, around that time, graduating from high school, I knew I wanted to pursue ministry, but was absolutely convinced that the best ministry was meant to be done <clears throat> both outside of the church and not in an established form of it, which is hilarious now that I'm in a very established um, denomination. And Says the minor. Presbyterian. Yeah. 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 So remember, this is still before I was Presbyterian. So uh, I, I was um, in the army. I got deployed overseas. Um, In the middle of the deployment, they let you come back for two weeks to remember how good life was and then send you back over. It was during those two weeks that my wife and I got married. And um, during that time, uh, she had a a dream in the middle of the night telling her to check out Mars Hill Church. I mean, now that we're we're Presbyterian, God doesn't talk to us anymore. But But that was before. So you're grandfathered in. (laughs) Very true. Um, And and it was strange. It was... um, not the earliest days of Mars Hill, but it was the first time that we'd ever seen an expression of Christianity that was theologically robust, engaged with culture, and focused on evangelism and church planning and really was seeking to be conversant at that time. So I, um, as soon as I finished my deployment, um, I transferred to do Moody Online so that I could start interning there did adult ed, um, life stage ministry, and then the final couple of years, pastoral um, life uh, department, which was like counseling and life groups and stuff at that time. Um, and started attending a small OPC seminary. Around that time, Keller came out to one of the conferences and I realized uh, they were doing all these things that I was uh, very passionate about a little bit better than we were. And they actually had a theological tradition that was anchoring them and they were passionate about mission and saw the work that Redeemer was doing um, and just realized that that felt like a tribe that was more aligned with our values at that time. Marcel was shifting away from those values. So um, went to uh, RTS in Charlotte North 
Carolina, we thought, um, you know what, maybe church replanting is what we need to do. We kind of grew up in an environment like that, looking forward to possibly going back and seeing what God could be doing. And uh, quickly realized when we were there, when the bug situation felt more like Starship Troopers than anything we were comfortable with, and the beer scene was awful, that that we were meant to come back to the Northwest. Uh, so at, at that point, um, God just put on our heart that we saw the great need that just like we were ignorant of in the Northwest. And we saw so much opportunity and place for the church to be different and just really kind of inflamed us to want to come back and plant a church, um, do it in a healthy way with helpful oversight and resources. Uh, we were encouraged with what you and the network were doing. Um, and it just, just kind of felt like a slam dunk. And you know that it was not an easy journey. They've, I was one of the worst assessed people <laughs> at church planning assessment, big old asterisk that like, maybe he can do it because nobody else will. And uh, <laughs> by the way, if you're listening in and interested in working with the network, we love guys with asterisks by their name at assessment. So yeah. <laughs> you ended up, so through some twists and turns, you ended up down in Corvallis and that work, uh, like all church planting, it's pretty difficult, especially in the first phase, the first years, really, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I don't know if it's gotten easier. It's just a different type of difficult as we've grown. Um, but it's been a beautiful opportunity. Um, we were, you know, the least preferred model of church planting, just parachute scratch plant. We had one person's like hotmail email address, which didn't give us a lot of confidence. Um, and That's probably just, the other thing people who are interested in the network need to hear, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just, it was a really slow start, just starting with Bible studies in people's homes, just slowly going up to a core group size, finding a place that we could do gathered worship, um, and then just slowly seeing our values and the vision of Christ Central, just both kind of germinate over so many years and we're by no means a large church currently like we're around 75 to 80 people um part of that is is corvallis is just very transient people come here for the university and they end up having to leave or with residencies and um but it's been amazing stories of both gospel transformation renewal it's been challenging for me and i've seen how god has grown me through it um and it's been just a very beautiful experience and just pray that I will never, ever have to church plant again. <laughs> well, it has been beautiful and moving and inspiring to watch. And I know that that journey has shaped the things that you studied with your dissertation and um, had an impact on you. That's made you want to stay and continue the work there, but maybe with a new or renewed maybe more mature perspective. So we're very proud of what Greg and Dolly and the community at Christ Central are doing. And that's why we want folks to hear a little bit more about it and learn from it. So let's start uh, talking a little bit. If you could frame a little bit about your study with your doctor of ministry, tell us the overarching view of that, and then we'll spend the rest of the time digging down into some of its parts. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, one of my passions has always been the relationship of gospel to culture. 
um, and how the gospel could both inform, transform culture, and just a very big view of the gospel. Um, and I saw the program at Fuller, and it both had a broad diversity and also would take me to some pretty cool places. So I pursued it there. <laughs> so one of my first courses was at Redeemer in New York City with Richard Mao having a very reformed perspective of the relationship of gospel and culture. And he had a very much a redemptive historical framework that we worked through. We were able to meet professionals in the city. It was one of the most amazing educational opportunities that I ever had. Um, then one of the next ones was with David Fitch, who's a CMA pastor uh, and does a lot of stuff in Illinois. And it was this sort of the same type of material, gospel and culture, but from a very different perspective. He's very much in the Anabaptist tradition. Um, so kind of hearing the other side. And then uh, my wife and I were able to spend a week in Scotland learning about uh, just the Celtic saints and Celtic Christianity. And a huge part of that is when Christianity is a missionary movement and they go to some place, how do they engage that culture? Um, so I felt like for me, it was these three strands that wove together and really recognizing that both the strengths of the Reformed tradition and the Anabaptist tradition were kind of both contained and interwoven within the Celtic tradition. Well, this Irishman, of course, is interested in that. But uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit first for yeah. just a moment about the strengths and some of the deficits of the neo-reformed and neo-anabaptist tradition and then we'll start to focus a little bit on uh, the celts of course got it right yeah, exactly the um and so the way that i'm using neo-reformed is not like young restless reform movement of like calvinists of the past 20 years but a little bit more late 20th uh century uh, so like people like gerhardus voss um kuiper bavink um, and just seeing the contributions that they did, I think in many ways they built off of the early reformers like Calvin and Turretin. Um, and I think that they had some very distinct contributions. And, and that's one of the things that I was thinking of is that as I have planted this church, what are the sort of values or distinctions of our philosophy of ministry um, as they find, I don't know, more of a foundation in these traditions. So with the Reformed uh, tradition, um, the one that really resonated with me was biblical theology from Gerhardus Voss. Like he was really one of the first people to make it yes. a well-renowned academic discipline of seeing Christ as the resolution of every storyline in scripture. That's one of those things that has always resonated with me. I think it's incredibly practical in both pastoral counseling, preaching, um, kind of having a vision of engagement with culture. Um, and that, so that was the first thing that I looked at. The second thing that I looked at, because the, the biggest critique of biblical theology is that it just creates a, um, just more of a bystanding and somebody who is just sort of witnessing this narrative unfolding. So it's many people have criticized the fact that like, where do you find ethics if you're just observing a story or anything else? But um, uh, that's where I relied on a more modern theologian, Kevin Van Huser, where he talks about it, not just like a story, but a theodrama, like 
a drama that you are enveloped in, that you're participating in, so that as you are reading the story of scripture, you see yourself participating in God's renewal, restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. And it creates a very much gospel-centered ethic by which we understand that, like, yeah, it affects sexuality, finances, relationships, all of these things, um, which I think is important to draw attention to that, which ties into the next thing is um, Kuiper's contributions to both the understanding of sphere sovereignty, shalom, um, and the relationship between all these things, although there's some distinction, there's also almost a perichoretic relationship where there's overlap where one informs the other. The flourishing of family life does help the flourishing of communities and vice versa. Um, even though there is distinction between them, there's still gospel application to all of them. So um, how does, let me ask about our, our tribe, the PCA. Yeah. Um, how, how has that tradition helped us? And maybe is it blinded us to certain things? Oh, I think it's absolutely blinded us to our incredible ability to articulate all of these things but we don't necessarily have a pragmatics to employ them. And I think okay. that's really where our blind spot is. Um, uh, I, like, I think we could do this for a long time and just podcast and talk and yeah. do all this and have a whiteboard where we have this all detailed out. Um, but seeing it get concrete, um, we kind of just miss the mark on it. It's almost like we sure. start with the academic we could articulate it. We want to make sure that people can articulate it. But does that really animate the planter or the minister enough to carry that forward? Sure. Uh, I, I, and I, I think that's the biggest that. Yeah. I can certainly see that. And we bring a lot to the table, but we leave a lot <clears throat> leave a lot outside the room too. And we need to rethink that integration and learn from learn from our brothers and sisters. So how would you frame the, the Anabaptist, uh, neo-Anabaptist tradition as you characterize it in your, in your work and some of the value that they bring to us and maybe some of the deficits that they also experience, our friends over there? Yeah, I, I see them uh, almost um, in reaction to everything that we've done. Like, whereas for us, we have a very clear articulation of our faith, of our theology, um, they might be a little bit more fuzzy on articulating those things, but they do such a wonderful job at actually creating gospel-shaped communities. You see this in the Anabaptist tradition, Mennonites, um, that they see reconciliation as just as important with one another practiced, lived out, as they do with their relationship with God. Um, and, and I think that it creates a really compelling um, lived theology and orthopraxy that just dovetails to orthodoxy that so often we miss out. Um, I think the other thing that they do that, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a missional guy, I love that, Keller has inspired me. Um, they have a very cautious relationship with culture that I think is very important. Um, I, I mean, especially for good Calvinists like us who know how depraved we totally can't be. Like it's been very easy to use being conversant with culture as an excuse to not feel bad about watching rated R movies. Or, exactly. <laughs> um, but they see that, especially with um, 
engaging in institutions where it'd be very easy to have imbalances of power. So as they think about engaging in business and economics and especially politics, um, they realize how quickly that can corrupt. And so often we want to say that we can participate in these systems to redeem them, but it's very easy that we can become blinded by that. So they're very hesitant about that. And I think that's, that's, that's a very uh, real critique that we can have. I, I certainly can feel that on a number of fronts. We, we might or might not be careful about being in our tradition, being um, resistant to issues of sexual purity. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we get A's on that, but we're better at it than our engagement of uh, economic culture and the material framework of the world that we live in and our ability to excuse it and to uh, to leave it in a in a world that doesn't really get the get the framework of our ethic laid over it. So um, yeah, we're kind of selective about about cultural engagement and, and it's cr it's critical element too. So Absolutely. we need we need to learn we need to learn those things. Uh, we're we're uh, you know we're a, a heady group and we we love that kind of thing. That's that's positive. If we make a mistake we make it uh, theologically we make it uh, very clearly and with a lot of uh, pages to defend it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe some of our brothers and sisters could learn that kind of thought precision, but uh, it's got to go beyond that. And we've got to apply that to our own ethic and behavior and engagement of the culture around us too. So. Uh, absolutely. And that's where I've been really challenged is how do we bring these kind of two threads together and do it in that way? Um, uh, and I think we've seen it, especially with guys in the Northwest, where we're kind of on a um, sort of a missional frontier where we don't get the privilege of just sitting in a room and writing these big lofty papers when we know that we are the overwhelming minority of what we believe. And yes. um, it really challenges us in that way. I was asked once by a woman in the Midwest how... I deal with the subculture out in Seattle. And I said, you, you mean the church, right? We're the subculture in Seattle. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit. You, you found your way to um, mm -hmm. the world of Celtic Christianity, which is uh, often romanticized and yeah. it's often uh, bastardized into new age kind of stuff but you find a lot more there, very realistic and I think robust views. So why don't you unpack that a little bit about what you discovered and why you think it really brings value to what we're doing in places like the Northwest? Yeah, I'll, uh, uh, I'm gonna be very selective with what I choose here, but hopefully it's the stuff that can tie especially into ministry and church planning. Um, they weren't the first expression of Christianity uh, to Britannia and the Celtic lands. Um, you could show that with the Roman Empire and soldiers that were actually previous expressions of Christianity there, but none of them actually took root or were established. So with the withdrawal of the Roman Empire, pretty much all of it disappeared. Um, so that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that it, 
As far as I can tell from my research, it's probably the first culture that the church has gone to that has sort of a metaphysics that reflects a biblical reality. Um, they were one of the first um, cultures that didn't see nature or creation as inherently evil or bad um, and didn't have sort of a salvation story of just escaping or transcending it or that we see in the West that it's just an illusion. So there was definitely common ground there with the biblical story that this creation is good. Um, so when you look at that, it's, it's important to see that there is a place where the previous Christian experience had failed, but there is a lot of common ground. But then you look at sort of the social context and the cultural context of the Celts, which was also, uh, well, let's draw attention to two things. First, they were very spiritually sensitive. Uh, the roles of the Druids had a very prominent place in the community, um, and they would touch on all matters of life through sort of a spiritual lens. So they were in many ways informing the political decisions, the military ones, the economic ones, the spiritual ones, like they saw that connection. Um, the other thing is that they, they were the barbarians. So they were very, very violent as well. The Roman empire were never really able to expand there um, and just very bloody and costly. So, um, uh, beginning with Aiden, he decided to do something that was a little bit different than the previous expression, rather than just sort of taking the franchised established model of the Roman Catholic Church and what that looks like. For them, they kind of went back to scrapping away a minimalist model about how do you do kingdom in a place that is very antithetical, but also has some points of correspondence to the kingdom. And this is where I saw a lot of synthesis with the reform tradition, the strengths that's there for church planning, but also with the neo Anabaptists. Well, that describes, so much of that describes the context that we live with and serve in out here in the Northwest. We've had a, a, a present Christianity in a formal sense uh, and, and vital earlier, and then it fades away. And we find ourselves in a world where there's a lot of antipathy, but also a number of points of uh, connection. Did did Aiden um, face resistance from the church in Europe and out of Rome to adapt ministry uh, to Ireland? I know that you mentioned the eighth canon of the uh, Council of Ephesus in 431, it gave him a freedom to do that. And I think that was an important part. I mean, you could forget that. Yeah. <laughs> How could you forget that? The reason yeah. I remember it is because I reread that page in your dissertation this morning. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with Aiden, I think it was an accident that he ended up going. Um, there was a monk who went right before him who just failed miserably. And as soon as the monk came back, uh, Aiden in the meeting, did the one thing that you're not supposed to is critique him, showed why it failed. So then that obviously made him the right person to send. Um, but the Council of Ephesus uh, in that ruling was important because it really did give him a freedom to have more self-autonomy and self-governance than reporting to bishops who were in a faraway land. Like it actually led to an indigenous expression of Christianity for the land of the Celts. 
Well, the, uh, the reason I bring that up is not to be wonky about Ephesus or church history, although we love to do that in our world. <laughs> It's because if we could be, if we can put our heads down and be sort of tribe centric, mm -hmm. the idea that there is a uh, expression that is franchised in the PCA and needs to be delivered uh, all over from coast to coast globally, that's a real dynamic. And this tension of trying to do ministry that's faithful to the creed, but but contextual in the best ways, mistakes can be made. That's a relevant analog to what we're facing in our own denomination. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that um, I found really encouraging about the Celtic Church was that they didn't just throw away orthodoxy or practices or anything. Um, what they did was they really applied both a robust patristic theology and kind of the spiritual formation and discipline of the desert hermits <laughs> to to this context and allowed it to flourish there. And, and that's where I, exactly what you're saying is it challenged me to give me more freedom to be, I think, more anchored in our theology, but maybe nuanced or expressed differently to our context. Well, the, the Celts weren't in those early um missionaries there, they were not theological lightweights, and they did not feel the need to accommodate the doctrines of the faith to the island that they lived on. But uh, neither did they feel the need to import all of the forms that they inherited or learned from and were blessed by back to their east into Europe. So you have... Um, you have this imagery that I'd like to unpack about this, if I read it correctly, about the island mm -hmm. and the, the pathway to the island. Tell us a little bit about that and the, the, uh, the um, tide and how it came in and out and how that became something of a metaphor, at least in your mind, for what you're trying to do. Yeah, um... So Lindisfarne is kind of the cradle of Celtic Christianity. That's where Aidan went and he established the monastery there. And it's located about a mile off of the coast. And it's right about where the border is between Scotland and England. And it's positioned and nestled in such a unique place that when the tide is out, you could actually walk to the island. But when the tide comes in, it's inaccessible. Like even if you go visit now, uh, you'll see pictures warning you of cars stuck there because you currently have to go when the tide's out, uh, drive out there and have these uh, tables set up to know when you can do that. It's, it's really fascinating. But what it allowed them to do was it allowed them a place of both accessibility to the broader culture while still re remaining distinct from the broader culture, that they saw themselves having this place of um, kind of the three terms that they use is refractory, like monastery place of hospitality, being able to socialize with one another, have friendships, have community there. Um, place of the cave of spiritual formation, growing with God, but they also saw that as really fueling their mission, that their goal was not meant to stay on that island. It provided a place for them to be encouraged, to grow and develop, but also for the purpose of getting to the island. Wow. Well, that is a wonderful image for ministry. 
Um, mm-hmm. There is a membrane between us and the world. It's permeable, but but it does exist. It also it, it's also meant, like any other membrane, to to filter so that we are not uh, corrupted or distorted by the world around us, but neither are we um, disengaged from it. I love that. That's probably my favorite part of of, uh, of your work, just because the imagery is so is so compelling to me. After thirty years of uh, ministry, twenty five of which are here in the Northwest, it's just yeah. it's been fascinating. Yeah, it it really challenged me because I think, especially in early years of my ministry, like I really loved the missional church and the missional model of just like, Hey, we're going to go get a coffee shop and we're going to surprise people in five years that we're actually Christians. Um, <laughs> and there was like no distinction there. And, and I think to be challenged in this way that you want to stay engaged, conversant, but distinct, and hopefully have all these things of both inviting others into this, but also going out into it. It just, it seemed like a much healthier model. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you saw this model as a convergence between the, the robust biblical uh, self-aware uh, orthodoxy of the neo-reformed tradition and the um, intentional community and fellowship and caution of, mm-hmm. uh, of the neo-anabaptists. And you found those things fused together. So you saw this, am I correct? Mm-hmm. You saw this as um, the composition of those things in, in an effective way, in a, in a hopeful way. Yeah, I think, I think so often we get used to our tribes and our traditions, and we either neglect or we're, not in a malicious way, ignorant that we could actually incorporate other strengths into our tradition. Um, and, and I think where we could place so much emphasis on theological precision, articulation, and all those things are good and great and needed. Um, We can neglect how that's actually played out in our communities and inviting our neighbors over and trying to see it lived well. Um, And I just saw the Celtic church not see any tension there. Like just, if you do one, you should be doing the other and both should inform the other. And, And I've seen that in my own life. The more that I've been, engage with my community and my neighbors, um, the more that it's helped shame, shape my theology and how I could articulate it and even understand it better. That's great. So tell us a little bit about how you'd like to see this worked out in your own ministry, you and Dolly and the, and the kids. And yeah. Also, of course, at Christ Central. Yeah. Uh, are you envisioning or how do you envision that becoming a reality? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll begin with the with the idea of a mulligan, like if I had to go back (laughs) and do this again, I think actually one of the greatest strengths uh, that's overlooked um, in their model, uh, the first thing they did when they got there was they just prayed for 40 days, a lot of fasting in there, just like waiting and just getting to know the community and really seeking God. I think so often we put too much emphasis on just culturally uh, exegesis and just like trying to discern the community. Um, And and I think this is helpful for a couple of different reasons. Are are you familiar with Friedman's failure to nerve and the self-differentiated leader? Um, 
Sorry, no. I'll let it. I'll let that answer out of this podcast. Okay. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, okay. So let's uh, edit up until this point. Uh, in many ways, I feel like they were reflecting the ideas of Friedman and failure of nerve with a self-differentiated leader. And the easiest way to understand that is leaders can kind of be two things. Either they could be a thermostat and reflect the culture of the context. So if you're in a place that is filled with anxiety, worry, activity, okay. you see that reflected in the leader. If you have a strong leader who's differentiated from it, they almost act like a thermostat where rather than just reflecting or telling the nature of the culture, they are actually healthy enough to change it. Um, and I saw that with the model of the Celtic saints and the monks was that they incorporated lifestyles that gave them a strong physical care, emotional care, um, intelligence, intel or emotional intelligence, um, and just being able to have a resilient ministry. Um, and that was just woven into their practices. And I think that allowed them the place of confidence and courage to be a thermostat to that culture and really engage it and try to um, engage it in a healthy way. Well, that's, um, that's been part of our journey as a network. We've, um, in our earlier years, it was, we were learning, but we didn't know as much as we do now. Yeah. When we first found you and Dolly, and uh, we were learning a little bit about its importance, but um, creating community, creating a framework for uh, self-sacrifice, but also in a, in a way that um, doesn't play into our own pathologies and, mm -hmm. and desire to be heroes and all that sort of thing. That kind of health is essential for the long-term work that we want folks to do. We're, we're building, as you know, we use this language, we're, we're trying to build ACE hardwares out here, not Home Depots. Yeah. And that, uh, that's hard. You know, it's hard to build a Home Depot church. There's not a lot of them. But, yeah. but our context, our setting, our objective, our sense of success really requires uh, a vital pastoral life and family life in ways that uh, can sustain and find value in local ACE hardware ministry for decades. And that's what we want, want to help men and women do. So. And that's what I saw the Celtic church too. I mean, you look at the ministry of, Oh my goodness. I'm so blanking on his name. Um, I think it was Cuthbert. It was the one who formed the monastery in Ionia, the Northwestern part of the, um, Scotland. And Columba, he found it over. Yes. Columba. Um, Good job. It's, it's, I had to uh, make up for not knowing that guy about leadership. So <laughs> fair enough. Um, and he planted over 300 churches. And it made me realize that if you build strong resilience and determination into its pastors, the churches can be okay. And I think rather than trying to find rock star pastors who culturally get it and stuff. Like, I think our assessments are good and they're needed, but I also think they might prevent good faithful church planners from doing good work. I, I think I look at myself as an example, like by all the metrics, I am not a church planter and I've been able to do this. And I wonder how many more people are out there who could also plant churches. Well, that's the, the asterisk comment I made yeah. earlier. 
You know, we, I would say that you can't make somebody a church planter, but you can, um, you can miss people that should be planting churches because they don't fit your paradigm. They don't fit what you're looking for. So are you seeing, um, I mean, I know the dissertation is relatively new. Your church is, you've been on the ground there at field seven, or excuse me, eight years. Are you envisioning ways in which you can help your people learn to live this way as a congregation? I, I also know, because I'm familiar with the ministry, it's not like none of these things were in place until you, you know, hit print or save on your dissertation. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you're exploring that. Yeah, I think in many ways, um, actually stopping and delving deeper into both our ministry and these traditions, like we kind of surprised ourselves in some of the stuff that we were doing already, like the emphasis of hospitality that you see is so strong in the Anabaptist tradition and in the Celtic church. Um, I, I mean, we still hold that the most missional piece of furniture you will ever buy is your dining room table. You know? <laughs> Don't skip yeah. on that. Um, and, and that's been amazing to articulate that. And even how um, there's a certain degree that the worship service itself shouldn't be, you know, a lecture hall to get information or a concert hall to be entertained, but should feel like a banquet hall that there sure. could be joy, celebration, the heaviness of life and how these things actually shape our people. Um, and I think in many ways provide a more compelling narrative than the narrative that culture is telling them. So I, um, I see those things as important. I think especially in light of COVID, the idea of spiritual formation and what I have needed for myself in terms of resilient ministry from relationships, um, strong marriage and family life, understanding self-care and um, just real good rhythms of renewal um, has really helped our congregation during this time. And I'm not saying that we haven't had difficulties, but I think being able to say, this is how the church previously got through hard times, and we can be mindful of that. Well, I've got I've got no um, attitude about larger churches, uh, and if any one of our planters ends up with a Home Depot church, that that's fine. That's we're not snarky or self righteous about that. Yeah. I would say though that if you're going to have a church, like. Most churches in America, by the way, I just did a long study that I'll put up uh, in some form on uh, our podcast or the, the blog itself about size and church in America. But if you're going to have a church of 120 people, you're not going to have a lot of bells and whistles. So you better have some rich relationships and some compelling community. Uh, which, of course, is what the New Testament calls us to do. And I don't think you can not have those things in a big church. Don't get me wrong. But um, there's no other place to hide. You have a, a vital, sweet, um, you know, rich community. At least you had before COVID. I'm hoping you still have it. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, and I think that's a, that's a win to us. We, we want to see gospel renewal and conversions and... Um, we want to see healthy pastors and their families. And um, we want to see some impact in the neighborhood that they're in. That's a win for us. And I think you guys yeah. are doing that. I hope you feel like you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's taken us a long time to be okay with that. Because I think everyone, even early on, says, oh, that's I'm okay with that until 
you yeah. actually have that. Exactly. <laughs> but yes. it's, uh, it's, although this looks so much different than anything I imagined, it's so much better than anything I could have dreamed. And I've really seen it now as a good gift. You two are happy there. Your family's happy there, aren't they? We are. We, uh, we hope that this will be our uh, last ministry in a good way, like be here long term. Okay. And I'm glad you said in a good way, because I don't want yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, flame out here in the next year. And, you know. and so uh, one quick question. Tell us, paint a little picture of Corvallis for us, and we'll end here because we've talked a lot about your church and about the approach that we're that you're using. Mm-hmm. But that in a, that's profoundly connected with your setting. So tell us a little bit about Corvallis, what you love about that place, how the gospel can serve that place, and just what it's like. Yeah, for uh, us, we settled on Corvallis because it in many ways reflects a lot of the characteristics of the Northwest that we really love. Um, we are both from um and our high school sweethearts from North Bend, Washington, a little bit smaller, but we loved how you get the culture of the big cities by being a suburb of it. And you see that very much in Corvallis, where although it's a smaller town of about 55,000, we have Oregon State University here. Um, we get, it's one of the second most educated places in the country. There's an incredible brew scene that's here. Yes, there is. Has, It has so many of those distinctions that just we absolutely love, but it's one of the least religious places. I mean, uh, I feel like that narrative gets said for every place, and it's all true everywhere, and Corvallis is no exception to it. Um, And we just see both a great need and a great opportunity that we see the church thriving and flourishing in a unique way in Corvallis that hopefully can be done to inspire and help churches flourish and other smaller communities throughout Oregon and Washington. So uh, it's a place that is both agrarian, uh, there's lots of farming around us, but also very educated with the university and just like this real blend in a way that speaks to my affinity of Wendell Berry. <laughs> there you go. I knew we would get to Wendell Berry eventually. We're going to have to land. We're going to have to land on Wendell Berry. We have to finish up. Let's here. do it. But I'm really blessed and encouraged by your work. You have been a real champion of faithfulness and tenacity and creativity to, to me and a lot of us in our, in our community of leaders here. And uh, we, we're excited about what God's doing there. And we do hope it's a long-term place for you to do rich and exasperating ministry. You know, it's always all those things. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Greg. God bless. Thank you. is a ministry of the Northwest Church Planting Network in Seattle, Washington. If you would like to be notified of future podcasts, please visit nwcpnetwork.com and click podcasts.